much once again for your uh, words of welcome. Um, and uh, I didn't appreciate that you were so big fans of alliteration. And that being so, I will now tell you about all the alliteration I didn't give you. Uh, so you just, if you're interested in it, what uh, I uh, noticed but didn't tell you was that in connection with the paraclete, the first section in John chapter 14, you've got the paraclete as pastor and protector. In the second section, chapter 15, he's there as the prompter and pedagogue. In chapter 16, he's the preacher and pioneer. In 1 John 2, 1 to 2, he's the preserver and pleader. So there. <laughs> I just thought I uh, wouldn't overburden you with alliteration. So you know what we're going to do this evening. We're going to look at the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, which of course is found in John's Gospel and in chapter 17. Now, in our previous evenings, we've been jumping about a little bit when we looked at the, the Holy Spirit in his ministry. We looked at chapters uh, 15, uh, 14, 15, and 16 in detail. And when we looked at the parables, we looked at chapters 13 and 15 in detail. And last night, we ranged right across the whole of uh, the upper room or the farewell ministry of Christ, as it is sometimes called. This evening, we're going to concentrate on one chapter, and that is John chapter 17. And we'll look uh, at that together this evening. I think the way uh, I, I'll handle it, if it's okay with you, is rather than read the whole chapter uh, and just take my way down through it, I'm going to break it down into its four component parts. There's a number of ways of dividing uh, the chapter up. Is this microphone echoing a little bit? It feels as though it's echoing to me um, a little bit. So maybe turn it down. So what we'll do is we'll divide it into its four sections and we'll... Uh, what I'm going to do this evening is is just um, explain, because um, although this is one of the most famous uh, prayers in the Bible, I think the only rival to it, uh, I think possibly, is the Lord's Prayer, uh, as recorded uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, that prayer, of course, was a prayer that is at the threshold of the Lord's ministry, uh, this prayer here is right at the very end, just before he goes uh, out to the garden. Of course, the more prayers will follow it. You remember the prayers in the garden of Gethsemane. He being in an agony prayed the more earnestly, falling down to the ground. Uh, this uh, prayer here is difficult to locate geographically. I, I, as I've indicated to you, I do think that in the upper room itself, that you've got chapter 13 and 14, but I do think at the end of chapter 14, if you've got your Bibles handy, you'll see the very last phrase of chapter 14 says this, Arise, let us go hence. And I rather think that that is exactly what they did. And so that is, if that is true, 15, 16, and 17, although they're not located geographically in any particular location in, in the city of Jerusalem, I think it's reasonable to suppose that these three chapters were um, a record of what uh, was taught by the Lord Jesus after they had left the upper room. So that is why it's not, strictly speaking, accurate to call chapter 13 through 17 the upper room ministry, because I rather suspect it is true that 15, 16, and 17 uh, succeed their period of time in the upper room. And it's, once you get that in your head, there's all sorts of interesting possibilities spring to mind. We know that in Herod's temple, that great clusters of vines and grapes were carved 
into uh, the upper columns of that uh, great edifice raised up uh, over a, a lengthy period of time uh, that would have been on the natural route out of Jerusalem, uh, going towards uh, the Kidron Valley where the, the, the winter brook was. You know that a winter brook is a brook that runs in uh, the winter season of the year and dries up during the summer. So likely, if this is around about uh, March-April time, it would have been uh, have been in flood. And that would be the route that would take them past the temple. Now, where exactly it is that the Lord Jesus prayed, uh, John chapter 17 is not uh, explained to us. It may have been literally as he stood at the gate of the city, just as he was about to exit uh, Zion. But he may have... Uh, notice what he says in the very opening verse. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. And I don't know uh, whether you picture the Lord praying. Very important to remember, by the way, we close our eyes, don't we? It's very interesting that in, uh, Christians routinely and uniformly um, in this dispensation, when we pray, we close our eyes. And when our children don't close their eyes, we scold them. They might one of these days speak back to you and say, Daddy, I'm doing it the biblical way. Because the Lord Jesus, he kept his eyes open, and he did more than keep his eyes open. What he did was very significant. He, he looked to the place from whence he expected the response to come. And in his case, I think he was looking home. You have a look towards home. And he was looking home. That's why he says these words, the hour has come. That phrase is used a number of times in John's Gospel. This is the last of them. And for him, the, the last hour of the last day, of the last week, of the last month, of the last year of his public ministry had finally arrived. The Lord Jesus had been anticipating these moments. And now the last hour had come. And he looks up into the darkened sky. It would have been probably around about 8 p.m. in the evening, so the darkness would have descended. It was Easter time. There would have been a full moon riding high in the sky. All around him a city in spiritual and religious and military ferment. All the, the, uh, the pilgrims from the, the various outlying towns and villages of Israel had, would have come streaming down. The city's natural population would have been swollen to maybe three or four times its normal size, heaving with religious fervor and zeal with the intrigues of the Pharisees. And as that city lies silent and cold and dead to his touch behind him, lovely to think that at the very gate of the city, if that is in fact where it was, before ever he went out to cross the Brook Kidron, he lifts up his eyes and he looks to heaven. He's looking, he's looking home. And I think that explains how he addresses this. Notice he doesn't say, Father, the hour has come. The hour when I will be lifted up. He doesn't say that. Elsewhere he has spoken about Calvary in quite elevated terms. Because Calvary, you would appreciate, was not only a physical lifting up of the Savior. And I, if I be lifted up, and so on. But the idea of elevation is also linked with, with the exaltation of Christ. You know, he was lifted up from the earth, not merely in uh, an act of barbaric savagery and cruelty, but in a sense, God lifted him up. He was lifted up. But here he looks even beyond Calvary, and he speaks, I, I, I see in my mind's eye him looking past Calvary and onward to the place to which he is bound. So let's just read 
this first section together. Verse 1, these words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power or authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, and the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, or beside, or with thyself, or alongside thyself, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now we break off at that stage. So the first prayer of the Lord Jesus ere he went to Calvary was for himself. And he was not asking for the fortitude of spirit or the courage of heart or the strength of resolve to face the long hours of degradation and ultimately pain and humiliation that would confront him when he faced the following day. His eye is onward and beyond that, and he looks to the home. He's spoken about the Father's house from whence he has come. And now he thinks about what it will mean to him to return to the Father's house. Now, there are a whole variety of opinions as to how precisely we should read this. And I'll just, as, as one other night, it would just take too long to put all the various opinions in front of you. I'll just try and teach it the way I see it. I personally think that when he says here, glorify thy son, that um, he is uh, it amplifies and explains what he means by that in verse 5. So he opens with glory and he closes with glory, that, this little section of five verses. And what he is speaking about very clearly in verse 5 is the glory which he had with God the Father before the world was. So I think that defines and explains the content of the glory. What he's, what he's, what he's looking to do is to hasten the moment when something that likely he has longed for and thought about and yearned over over those long years of, in a sense, separation from the Father, in the years of his public ministry, he looks for a resumption of the glory, as he puts it here, which I had with thee before the world was. Now that is speaking about the glorification of Christ. You know, can, can we enter into what it meant to the one who, in a bygone eternity, before the first star glittered in a sky, before ever a sun had kissed the first day, before ever a fish had swum in the sea, before ever man had walked in the garden, before ever the world was, in that eternity gone by, there had been a father and a son living, if we may so speak, in the Godhead in perfect harmony and mutual uh, joy and approbation in the fellowship which they enjoy. These are difficult things for human beings to enter into. But before ever there was creation, there was a, a God of creation. And evidently there was a joy and a contentment and a peace and a satisfaction that they derived from one another in a way that almost defies our understanding and imagination. And he longs for the resumption of that. 
in a way that we cannot enter into. Humanity circumscribed Christ. That is why he's our great high priest. You know, there's a difference in types of knowledge. One of the things that sometimes puzzles Christians is we, we sometimes wonder at how he can empathize and understand our situation because we say to ourselves, well, if, he, if, he's, is he, if he's omniscient, if he knows everything, then surely he didn't need to become man in order to sympathize with us as a high priest. But you see, there's a confusion of thought there that needs to be identified. And what you need to appreciate is, is that knowledge can be acquired in two ways. I can acquire knowledge, and I'm speaking very reverently here, through a book. And I could explain to you, for example, how the combustion engine works, because I've applied myself over hours and days, possibly, as to getting an understanding of how the motor of a car works. I could explain it all to you. But I rather suggest that it would be a different thing if I could explain from personal experience, having driven behind the wheel of a car. This is the difference. The Lord has felt pain. He doesn't know about it. The Lord has felt the trickle of a cheek, on of a tear on his cheek. It's not just that he, as the divine one, understands what sympathy is in that abstract sense of things. The omniscient God understands hunger. For after all, he created human beings with appetites and well understood om as a function of omniscience what hunger, as it were, was. But God had never hungered. In fact, the Psalms tell us a little bit about this. It says, the God that keepeth Israel, it says, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. The unwinking eye of Jehovah rested constantly on his nation. But when he was here, he slept. As man he slept. You see the difference? It's not that he, that the God, the, the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, was in any way confined as to his knowledge. But what we're talking about now is experience of that knowledge. How that knowledge is acquired. It's the difference between the textbook and the experience. It's the difference between the classroom and the workplace. And we, we marvel at it, don't we, that he knew all those things. But you know, the one that grieved, the one that wept, the one that hungered, and the one that mourned, the one who entered into the, the realm that he had created and saw what sin had done, this prayer expresses and anticipates what he longed for. He longed to be back in that realm where all that weakness and sadness and sin and failure was driven to one side. He longed for resumption of that glory that he had. Now that, I think, is an understandable thing. I mean, this is a very elevated prayer. And at times we, we struggle to penetrate its meaning and understand. He, he praises you and I would never, we would never have prayed this. But he prayed for it. There's a mystery about it all, isn't there? He prays to the Father for what his omniscience knew could not be prevented. And yet as a man in a way that we cannot comprehend, he prays and asks the Father to give him that for which he longed. 
And that is a resumption of that glory. I don't think so much he's speaking here about the, the external, external aspects of glory, the radiance of splendor that sometimes is linked with the glory of God. The glory oftentimes in Scripture has a, has a far wider category of meaning that. This is a resumption of that happy relationship, that exclusivity of affection, that mutual regard, that realm that was beyond the reach of sin and harm, where no nail would ever be driven through his hand, where no insult would ever be hurled in his face, where spittle would never run in his cheek again. He just longed to be back in that realm of happy glory, side by side with the Father. Now notice what he says, he speaks of that glory that the Father alone would give him. I think this is anticipatory of the ascension. You know, he was... Uh, heaven is oftentimes linked with glory, the more excellent glory. There came a voice from the more excellent glory. And he's thinking about that moment when in a glorified body, he'll be taken back into heaven again. And notice what he says, that that resumption of glory is with a view to the Son glorifying thee. Now, in a measure, of course it is true, as we see in a moment, that he had glorified God on the earth. You know, we, we, we try to glorify God in our bodies, don't we? That's what the New Testament teaches. We we do try to, in our lives and testimony, do that which brings honor to our God and Savior. But we will never bring glory to him in the way that the Son brought glory to the Father. I mean, I oftentimes marvel on a Lord's Day morning at, 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 the, at what it must have looked like from heaven above for angels to watch with wandering eyes at a sinless life. Forget for a moment the miracles, forget for a moment the wisdom that fell from his lips, forget for a moment the miracle of his life, but just to see sinless perfection. You know, I think that may be what underlies Romans 3.20. We all have sinned, difficult verse, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What, what particular feature of glory is it that we, we have never attained to? Well, there might be a multitude of answers to that question, but at least one thing we can make sure about is that there is a glory about, about the righteousness of God. That pure, unsullied glory that is characteristic of the God of righteousness, of the holy God of eternity. And he glorified God in his life, in his stainless life. We sometimes sing back home, I don't know if it's a hymn you use here, thy stainless life. Thy lovely walk, in every aspect true, from the defilement all around, no taint of evil drew, no broken service, Lord, was thine. No stain was in thy way, unsullied in thy holiness, thy strength knew no decay. And he had glorified God on the earth. But he anticipates bringing further glory to God. You know, it's almost impossible to conceive how that further glory could be acquired by the all-glorious God of eternity. But I think the teaching of it is this glorify that meaning the work having been completed, Calvary having been endured, the resurrection having been accomplished, he ascends back into the very presence of God in glory. What is the purpose of that? Well, he says, as 
How is the glory to be brought to God? As thou hast given him power over all flesh. I think that refers back to his status as uh, the successor to Adam. Adam, you know, was given the dominion over the earth. Given authority over the creation. The second man, the last, Adam, he is brought in. And he too has an authority over all men. He is a, a dominion uh, over all men. And notice what he says in that connection. Why was he given that dominion? That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, the, the very simple point I want to make about that is this, is that this is the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ preeminently has brought glory to God. That salvation for a ruined race, that redemption for mankind, that forgiveness for a, 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 a wicked stock has been made gloriously possible because a man has come in and taken up that, rule, that role in that realm that Adam forfeited and lived as he never lived. Has gone to the cross. Has ascended to God's right hand. And in his hands, the authority to forgive sin. Why so? Because of his death for sin. On Calvary's cross. You know, it's a wonderful thing. I don't know, is there anybody here in the meeting not yet saved tonight? But draw courage from this miraculous truth, this wonderful truth, that there is a man at God's right hand. As sure as I stand in front of you, there is a man at God's right hand with absolute authority over mankind, but with blessed truth, a greater authority. The authority to forgive sin. Do you remember that was the great complaint of the Pharisees? When they said, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And they quite correctly objected and said, who but God can forgive sins? Omitting to notice that the point was that the man that stood in front of them was God. And the power to forgive sins has been put into the nail-pierced hands of Christ. Because he has died for sin. Because he has succeeded where Adam failed. Because he has triumphed where Adam fell. There is a man that can forgive sins. And he stands at glory's highest height this evening. Having lived a life that brought joy and pleasure. To the heart of his father God. He is our saviour. Then we read the second section together. So he prays, as it were, I, I, would, I, would, I would sort of forbear to say in a selfish way, but he does pray for the great burden of his heart that night that God would give him what he yearned for. I think it's oftentimes, this is John's commentary on what Hebrew says, isn't it? Have you ever meditated on a Lord's Day morning in these lovely words? Who for the joy that was set before him? Endured the cross, despising the shame. And is now set down at the right hand of God. You know, I do wonder whether we should think about Calvary carefully. You know, I do believe it was a dreadful experience for Christ. But there is at least, at least this to say, that he knew what lay beyond it. I don't know, have ever any of you here had serious surgery? I suppose maybe one of the things that might have crossed your mind as you lay in the hospital ward before you went under the knife 
that you didn't know whether you would emerge from it or not. And you would maybe have had explained to you by the physicians that there were complications and there were risks associated with the procedures. And these things weigh heavy in your mind. And in the night watches before the day when the, when the scalpel will be wielded and the theatre lights will burn in your eyes, you know that there is that unknown, unquantified risk that you might never see another day. The Saviour never looked at Calvary like that. The Saviour saw the cross, and miraculously he looked beyond it, and he saw what lay before him. You know, it's a wonderful thing, who for the joy that was set before him. What joy is that? What joy was it that impelled the Saviour to walk up Calvary's hill? What was it that made uh, the wheels and the wounds and the sadness of Calvary a thing that he bore with gladness of heart? It was the likes of you and I. Precious thought. Who for the joy that was set before him? He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And he's now set down at the right hand of God. Father, glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. Now let's read from verse number 6. I have manifested thy name. He now moves away not from his own preoccupation. He now begins to pray for the, now bear in mind this is the disciples, the twelve or the eleven accurately so called that is now on his heart. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. So if you're an astute reader of scripture you will see that this cannot just be their selection as apostles because out of the world has a moral and spiritual dimension to it. We come out of the world by way when we're redeemed. And so he is speaking, I would suggest to you very clearly, in men coming out of the world, of their severing their links with the world and of their being joined to Christ. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Here is, here is the first clearly articulated prayer. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. So here's another source of glorification glorified in his own disciples. And now I am no more in the world. And here again, plainly, he's looking beyond Calvary. He's got this extraordinary capacity to ignore the darkness of the day that would follow and look onwards to the brightness of the happy day that lay beyond. Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee that these things I speak in the world, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy. Here's another prayer. So he prays for that they be kept. Here he prays that my joy might be fulfilled in themselves. <coughs> I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here he says what he is not praying for. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here is his third key prayer. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, now I think this is the only reference to Calvary in the whole of the prayer, the only clear reference to the, to the death of Christ in the following day. Notice what he says in this section. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I dedicate, I consecrate myself, I think, to the death of the, of the cross, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now let us pause and think for a little while about what these verses signify. The opening statement there, I have ma manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world, I think are designed to show that, that as he sa has already said to Thomas, he that has seen me has seen the Father. If we want to know what deity looks like and sounds like, what it, what it feels like and what it what it is in a, in a fallen world, then we, we look no further and nowhere other than to Christ. Now that little expression there, I have manifested thy name. You see, how do you manifest a name? Surely names are written or spoken. How do, you, how do you display a name? Well, in the Old Testament, you see, they believe, these godly Jews, that, that Jehovah was so remote and so different and so aloof from humanity that he could scarcely be known or understood. But they did, did believe this, that in, in the name that he gave in, to Moses in the wilderness, I am that I am hath sent thee. He divulged or explored and explained to Moses what he was in himself. Names do that, by the way. You know, I, I know we've kind of completely gotten away from it, but if, if you ever have a kid, have you ever thought about the source of inspiration for your child? I, I, I really should be preaching this to myself because I have to say that when Rosemary and I were in the uh, delivery room or the, the, the maternity ward, we just thought of names that appealed to us and we came up with a bunch of names. But did you notice that in the Bible that they, they name people for what they want for the child? Right the way through the Old Testament, a name was a significant thing. You remember the famous one when, was it Rachel said, Benoni, the son of my sorry, says, no, the father says, no. Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Now you see, you think, well, surely that, that habit and that practice of naming people for God or naming people for the situation, that must have died out in, in the New Testament. You know, that's not true. You think about the amount of people that renamed, were renamed in the New Testament. The Lord did it. So there's the highest precedent for it. You know that there were some people had names and they were changed by Jesus. You know, Simon, what did he become? Well, 
The Lord Jesus wanted to make a statement about that. He says, no, Peter, the rock. If you go over into the New Testament epistles, you'll discover there that a little bit like uh, they did, remember with Daniel, there was, there was three little Hebrew boys called Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. And they became, they became renamed by a Babylonian king, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. So a good spiritual name. They were renamed for Babylonian gods. Well, you come over into the New Testament, you discover that, 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 that Christians who had pagan names took on Christian names. You know, that is why you find boys in the New Testament with amazing names like Theophilus, the lover of God. And the old pagan names, you know, it's not just a habit that, that, by the way, died out in the New Testament. You do know that some of the great Christian institutions of our world, when the new leader is appointed, he takes on a name. Mr. Ratzinger, the German, became, well, I won't trouble you with the name that he took up. And, and nuns in, in holy orders right around the world, they often have names they were given at birth. And when they join the order of nuns or whatever they may, they become... They're given Christian names. I'm not suggesting that you start renaming one another after the breaking of bread. That would be an awful headache for the elders. What are they going to call you? But what, what I'm saying and suggesting to you, you know, is that names oftentimes express important principles. They oftentimes are a reflection of the, of the wish of the parent for the child. Or even the prayer the, that's why so many names in the Bible are, are impregnated with spiritual values. You know, Elijah. What is Elijah? Eli. El. Yah. Jehovah. Elijah. And that's why, by the way, nearly all those Old Testament characters, the name begins with El. Because it's the name of God. And they bring the name of God even into the naming of their children. And so therefore, just to re retreat to the point here, what he's saying is uh, displaying the name. You see, the name spoke for more than just a name that was the kind of personal name, but rather it, it, it was an insight into the attributes of the person. Of course, in humanity, it's the desire, not necessarily, it didn't always work out. But with God, when his name is known, you can, you can learn about God and the name that he gave himself. He's the only person in the universe that named himself. Say that I am that I am hath sent thee. And in naming himself, he explains himself. And so what you've got here is this simple uh, truth that what God is, that's the idea of the name, what he is individually, personally, was manifested by Christ. His name was made known. The character and greatness of God was expounded. In the life of Christ. He has made his name known. And now he speaks of them as them that the Father had given him out of the world. Now, some have taken a very strongly Calvinistic view of that and said, well, there they are, all these people in the world, and the Father just kind of took a handful of them and he gave them to Christ. Now, that would be absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches. You say, that sounds great doctrine to me. But then just read on a little bit. Notice what it says in verse number 8. He says, of, those, of them that he gave the but notice what he says, and they received them. 
and have known. And that's, if I may respectfully say so, just as I was seeking to persuade you the other night there, Scripture in a nutshell. The Father gave them to the Son. Did that mean they had no, no role to play in the matter? Did that mean that they were reprogrammed like robots in some uh, um, sci-fi show? Not about, he says, oh, they, they heard thy word and they received it. That's my responsibility. You know, I don't know what you've thought of these meetings. I have no idea. But you know, I do firmly believe that meetings such as this are not, we sometimes say in the gospel, preach for a decision. Preach for a verdict. I believe every ministry meeting, there's a verdict. I'm not here just by the way, and this is, this is absolutely sincere now. This is not a form of spiritual entertainment. You know, there's some people maybe go to the Ornithological Society and they hear about the habits of the, the lesser spotted marsh warbler. And they're informed about the lesser spotted, and it's a form of entertainment. They, they learn more about it. And some, well, they uh, maybe go to the local horticultural society and learn about the properties of the dandelion. And then they go to the Christians that go to the uh, Midland Park. Well, they go for their form of information and entertainment to the midweek ministry meeting. And your minds are populated with little ideas that you never had before. And you go home better informed. Is that what this is all about? You amateur enthusiasts with your notepads and binoculars around your neck, just to take a few notes and learn a little bit more about a topic that is interesting to you. Well, it's not that. It's none of those things. When you hear the word, the issue is whether or not you receive it. Just like it was in Salvation's Day, you, you received the word. You accepted it. Just the way a guest is received to the home. You embrace the truth. You bring it into your life and you make it your own. You know, you do that in these meetings. You weigh it up and you think about it. And the big issue is not what, what you thought of it all at the end. The question is not whether you receive the truth. I think the way we think about ministry meetings would be radically transformed. Maybe the way ministry is presented would be radically reformed if we appreciated that there are questions debated in the souls of every Christian that hears the truth taught. And the major issue is, do you embrace it? Do you receive it? Do you make it your own? Does hearing about Christ warm your heart? Can you detect there's any warmth in my heart when I preach about him? You know, that is a huge challenge to me. It's when I deal with my Savior, is there a warmth and a pathos about it that makes it abundantly clear to you that even though you think nothing of him, he means so much to me. And the question now is, do you receive it? They were given by the Father to the Son. But it is equally true that they stretched out the empty hand of faith and received the message that came from Christ. They received what they were given. Now notice another lovely thing here. It says here, they have kept thy word. Now if you have been reading the upper room ministry of Christ, or the, the farewell ministry of Christ, as I've been arguing it's really called, you will notice that quite a lot of a critical character is said by the Lord Jesus of the deficiencies of the disciples. 
just at the end of chapter 16, for example, he 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 kind of expresses, I think, a degree of, of scepticism as to whether or not the disciples who are proclaiming that they understood everything now, he says, do you think you really have? And he, he, one of the reasons why the spirit of truth had to be given on Pentecost was so that truth that they hadn't been able to imbibe during his ministry, that the spirit of truth, as it were, would carry on Christ's ministry and lead them into the truth that they'd been not, not able to accept. So there was a lot of truth the disciples struggled and were unwilling or un, unable maybe to understand. But notice what the Lord says here. They have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. So that expresses the basic conviction that what he taught, though they didn't necessarily understand it, came from the Father. Now they were perfectly willing to accept there was a God in heaven. Their big struggle was, what do we make of this man here on earth? And they had come at the end of the day just to accept this, that he has come from God. Now what I like about that is this, is the Lord speaks well of his disciples. He doesn't focus on their deficiencies. As he lifts them up in prayer, high priestly prayer before the face of the Father, before he goes to the cross, he's not lamenting and hand-wringing over all the failures in their life and the deficiency of their understanding and the fact that they haven't really got this and they haven't really got that. He is blessing God for what they do believe. You know, I really believe that this is the kind of attitude we should have towards one another and about one another. It's a miracle that we are what we are. Maybe there are things that we don't get, we don't understand, things we haven't fully grasped. But, you know, the miracle is, is what we do have. The truth that does bind us and unite us. We, we ought to rejoice in the fact that I would suppose it is true probably that everybody here in this room believes that Jesus Christ was God manifest in flesh. We all believe that he was born of the virgin. We believe he lived a sinless life. We believe he died an atoning death. We believe he rose in power over grave over the grave, on the third day. We believe he lives at God's right hand and we believe he is coming again. You know, that's quite a lot to keep us together. These are the key cardinal essential truths that unite Christians. This is biblical Christianity. Mind you, there's a lot of boys who claim to be Christians they don't believe any or all of that. And for a famous man who was no more or no less than the Bishop of Durham, Mr. Jenkins, and he said of the resurrection, it was no more and no less than a conjuring trick with bones. And that man is a successor, by the way, to the seat of Bishop Handley Mool, whose books, no doubt, you may or may not be from Handley Mool was the Bishop of Durham in a day gone by. In fact, going down the train to London just a week or two ago, I could see Durham Cathedral on the hill just in the distance. I thought to myself immediately of Handley Mool, and then I thought of Mr. Jenkins and got a bit upset. A bishop, if you please, of the Anglican Church. The, conjure, the resurrection of Christ is a conjuring trick with bones. I just want to tell you straight, and I don't think I'm going to be contradicted on this matter when I get to heaven. The man's not saved. 
is not saved. Doesn't matter how big the mitre is in his head. Doesn't matter how many croziers he waves about at his congregation. Doesn't matter how many sermons he preaches. Doesn't matter how big his cathedral is. Doesn't matter how many doctorates he's got. He doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, he has no salvation. Because, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells me, and tells me plain, if Christ be not risen, then we are of all men most miserable. And ye are yet in your sins. And so, he doesn't focus on what separates them, what he unites in gladness of heart ere he goes to the cross, is that these three years with them have united them in a common faith in the divine origin and sacred truths taught by Christ. And notice what he says, verse number 9. Again, a misunderstood verse. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Now, some people have read that to mean that we shouldn't pray for the world and that we should concentrate our prayer on the Christians. Now, I absolutely refute that because I, I can cite biblical precedent for the error of that thought. Um, for example, First Timothy chapter 2, I will that you pray for kings and for all that are in authority. Query, are, all, are the kings and the men that are in authority saved men? Well, are they? Well, they were the Neros and the Emperors of Rome back when they were written, so that's scarcely true. I'll not ask whether you think Donald Trump is saved, because that maybe would cause a bit of a, an uproar. Or maybe not, I don't know. But, you know, you get my point. Um, we, we are asked to pray for unsaved men that are in authority. What about the Lord Jesus? Were the saved men that hammered the nails through his hands and feet? Father, forgive them. What about Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount? Pray for them that despitefully use you. Now, I grant you that that doesn't say in express terms, pray for the unsaved, but I'm rather hoping that those that despitefully use us are not saved. If the Christians despitefully use us, we've got a major problem on our hands. Ordinarily, one would expect the Christians to be nice to one another. Of course, you're all nice to one another here in the Midland Park, aren't you? I'll not dwell on that point. I'm sure you. I'm sure you are. You're all nice people. So, we pray. I think for the world. But the point here in context is not. It shouldn't be read to mean that you don't pray for the world. The point is that he's burdened before he goes to cross is for a small group of men that he loves. And they're going to have to carry on testimony when he goes. And so his prayer life and his prayer focus and his prayer heart is not extending out to the world that will put him on the cross the following day. His heart is bent in solicitation for those that he knows he's leaving behind. He's got an exercise about it. He's praying for them. And you know, that should be us. We should, we should have burdens about people and about those that we know and love. And he has a burden for them. And he prays for them before he goes to the cross. And then he says this. And now, verse 11, I am no more in the world. He's already anticipating that Calvary is past and he's already passed into the other world. 
But these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. By the way, the only person in the whole of the Bible that right, has any right to be called the Holy Father is our Saviour. You know, there are some men in this world and they, they are addressed as Holy Father. And I just want to tell you that they are usurping a role alone that is filled by Christ. By, by the Father, rather. So that the Saviour looks up into heaven and says, Holy Father. And this is what he says about them. Keep through thine own name those that thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Now then, there are a couple of things that arise here that we need to address. What is the keeping that is in view here? What kind of preservation is in view here? Is the father, is the son rather asking the father to throw a ring of steel round them? So wherever the apostles went, there were outriders and black sedans, and men with dark sunglasses and, and earpieces in their ear and a couple of revolvers in their hip pockets. So the minute Peter rolled into a town to preach the gospel, security guards fanned out on all sides. Angelic ones, you understand. Is that the way that they were kept? Not a bit of it. They were stoned. And they were derided. And they were imprisoned. You say, oh no, we've got a major theological crisis on our hands. The Lord's prayer was not answered. Well, I suggest the explanation to this theological crisis is to perhaps reevaluate what he means by keep. This is not so much the ring of steel or the security detail to protect them from all harm. You know, the Lord keeps those that he exposes to harm. I think the context reveals what he means. What is the point of the keeping? That they may be one. Now, this is quite important because it will help us understand the unity that he speaks about further down. What he is speaking about here is a unity of fellowship between them. Now, there were moments when that unity was... was Challenge. Do you remember the great crisis in Acts 15 when the apostles had to wrestle with some knotty theological issues? That's K-N-O-T-T-Y as opposed to N-E-U-G-H-T-Y, knotty theological problems. It's just the relationship of law and grace. How do we deal with the issue? And Paul and Barnabas, they come down from Antioch and they're saying, look, you know, the Gentiles are, are clamoring to hear this gospel and they have no idea about the law, and how can we impose on them a law that we struggle with all our life? And then James, who's an elder in the local assembly there, it's interesting that the elder has the last word and not the apostles, by the way, but that's ministry for another. James, the Lord's half-brother, he stands up and he kind of whole gathers up the argument. Now, these were challenges to unity, because if they had not decided it that way, I wonder what Paul and Barnabas would have done. But thankfully, they... They kind of dealt with it in a gracious way and there was an apostolic unity. I don't think any of the apostles, to the best of my knowledge, though perhaps scripture doesn't give us the, the whole story, I think to the day that their heads rolled on the floor or when they were laid in their coffin or when they were carted away to be crucified as Peter was, whatever their end was, that there was a unity that marked them. So I do judge that this prayer has been uh, answered by the Lord in that they maintained a united stand. That's why there is a thing called the apostolic doctrine. They all stood for truth. So this prayer that they might be one was a prayer that the Lord sought for and 
uh, was answered. And then, of course, he deals with the exception, which is Judas, and he does show that although Judas certainly did not uh, remain in the apostolic band, that was because of other considerations. And he speaks of those considerations in verse number 12. Then he again comes back to the topic again, verse number 13. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Notice what he says in verse number 16. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them. So again, the idea of guardings in view and guarding from the evil or the evil one. So we need to grasp, and I want to move a little bit more quickly now, that we oftentimes think that God's purpose for us is that he would take us out of this world and put us on a a hilltop in a cave, or maybe in a monastery in a cell. And over the years, many Christians wrestling with the world have thought that the answer to the world that so reviles them as to just to retreat from it. But you know, the men that went to their little uh, cells in the proper sense of that word in the monasteries, the men that retreated to their hilltop caves, there was a man called Simon Stylotes, who sat on top of a column, uh, protruding many feet into the air, an ascetic, an early Christian ascetic, he sat cross-legged up there, I think for 30 years or something unbelievable. There are certain practical issues around doing that, so I presume there was somebody to give him a bit of a hand every now and again. But they thought, if I could just rise above the world or get away from the world. You know what they discovered? They took the world with them. But the world's in here. You'll never escape the world. For we carry the world within us. So our... Our way of dealing with the world is not to retreat from it, but we live in it. You know, you've got to be very careful as a Christian about what separation means. There are some communities where, you know, if your boys and girls are saved, you don't allow them to play with unsaved boys and girls. And I just don't think that's right at all. And you're not allowed to have unsaved friends. And I just don't think that's right at all. We're not. We're not going to escape the world by closing the door on it. But notice what he does say is the solution to it all. Verse 17. This is how we escape this world. Sanctify them through thy truth. So this is the prayer of the Son to the Father. Thy word is truth. So that word sanctification, you know, has the idea of being set apart. It's the idea of being dedicated to God. It's the idea of being preserved and blessed and protected in a hostile world. How how are we going to enjoy sanctification? Through thy word. You know, there are other aspects, I suppose, to sanctification, but what what really we're learning here is just thy word is truth. And you know, what will keep you holy and separate is the Word of God. Now, I'm just going to throw the challenge out. There's a lot of Christians here this evening. You opened the Bible when I started to read. 
about uh, an hour ago. Had you opened it at any point earlier today? I want to speak to the sisters. You mustn't imagine that because in this assembly, quite properly, there are restrictions placed on your role as an audible participant in the meetings or leading the assembly in prayer or in worship or in teaching. The Word of God, by the way, is absolutely clear on that subject. Evangelical Christendom is trying to confuse the issue half the time because it doesn't suit the world that we live in. The word, of, the word of God is absolutely crystal clear on that. But one of the things that we need to be careful about in the meetings, because we don't give our sisters a role, uh, the role of teaching the flock or leading the flock audibly, is that sometimes that subliminal message goes out there that you don't really need to know your Bible. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because if you're going to live a life that pleases God, you will need to be sanctified by the Word. Sometimes it's a little bit like the labour, you know. I think I maybe pointed out the other day there that the running water is oftentimes linked to the energy and power of the Holy Spirit. Living waters are oftentimes linked with the Holy Spirit because he's a living person. The limpid, clear, still waters of Psalm 23 and of the labour are very often times linked, I'm not just saying this is a broad application rather than a crucial issue of interpretation, are oftentimes linked with the, the Word of God in its spoken and written form, both, by the way. And they cleanse you. I am convinced that in a world that is more impure now, I suppose, than it ever has been, that one of our chief defences against the impurity that surrounds us in every hand is in the measure and to the extent that our minds are cleansed by the washing of the water of the Word. You know, a priest would never officiate at the altar or officiate in the holy place without his hands constantly being immersed in the clear crystalline water of the labour. And no more and no less should we. As we engage for God in holy things, we need, to, we need to be in the good of the cleansing value, the sanctifying power of the word of God. Now, of course, sanctify thy word is truth. This is the spoken words of Christ. We know now we can't hear him any longer. He has gone from us. But they speak to us still through Scripture. And we need to wash at that water. Then he says, uh, we'll move on from there uh, to the third sequence in the prayer. Verse number 20. Neither pray I for these alone. So you can see now that the ambit of his prayer is moving out and beyond the disciples, the eleven and he's moving out to a, 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 a wider circle of interest. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, I'll tell you, I'll just tell you what I think this means. I, some people argue that that just means first century Christians. 
those that actually physically heard, literally heard the apostles preach and were converted through them. I, some people argue that. I don't believe that. I believe I heard through their word. You say, how you never heard an apostle preach? Well, who wrote this then? Is this not an apostle? Is John not an apostle? You know, true it is, I maybe don't hear him audibly, but I'm, I'm, I'm listening to him. How many were saved through John 3.16? Few, I would suppose, you heard through his word. The apostolic word of John, you heard through it. True it is that it's the words of the Saviour he's recording, but see, what we do is we... Did you ever realise that every Lord's Day we listen to the apostles? The argument is in Acts 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You know, the Bible, the New Testament is the apostles' doctrine. It's what the apostles taught. Now, I grant you Luke wasn't an apostle. I grant you that Mark wasn't an apostle. And I would grant you that James wasn't an apostle. And I don't know about Hebrews. And I'm not even going to try and guess. But the rest were apostles. And you know, it's a wonderful thing. I, I sometimes just can't quite believe it, that I'm, I'm reading with a freshness, power and clarity as if it had been penned the day before. The word of the apostle to me. And I do believe with all my heart that the point of verse number 20 is he's now preaching, he's now praying for the like of you and I. Now just stop, dear Christian. Did you ever think Did you ever think that Jesus has prayed for you? He has. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that the Father is the same as the Son, and the Son is the same as the Father for practical purposes, the, 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 there is no distinction between the Father and the Son. Well, you know that it doesn't mean that. It's not the point of what it's teaching. The point is that although they are distinct persons of the Godhead, they're united in purpose, united in their same essential nature, united in their goals, and uh, united uh, in uh, their, their um, purposes for this world. That is the unity of Father and Son. Thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and he adds these words, that they also may be one in us. This is part of that miraculous uniting together of the Christians with the Father and the Son in a unity, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, the ecumenical movement, of course, has taken up a verse like this and used it as its banner. Now, I hope you can very readily see that it's a spiritual unity he's speaking about here. The unity between the Father and the Son is a unity of purpose, a unity of intent, a unity of essential nature. It's not, a, it's not imposed on them. It's not, it's not uh, impressed upon them. It's not demanded of them. It's just, it's just an expression of what they are. Now, you, 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 need, you need to grasp this, that what there is between all Christians is a unity, a spiritual unity. We belong to one entity called the church. 
That is spiritually speaking true. Now here is where it gets difficult, is that there is a sense in which ideally we should all be one. I've oftentimes wondered what kind of world it would be if all the Christians gathered in what resembled, to one degree or another, the order that we gather. You know, I, 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 I kind of just don't see that there's any other way than baptism by immersion. You know, there are, there are some things back home, we call them no-brainers. And to me, baptism by immersion for Christians is a kind of no-brainer. If you don't believe in it, I'm sorry if I've insulted you. But I do believe that baptism by immersion is a bit of a no-brainer. It's just the Bible says it. I mean, how you get around it, I cannot fathom. But you know that about 80% of Christians doesn't practice it. It's very few. If you are a student of religious affairs, as I have in a measure endeavour to be, it's astonishing to find how many of these dear people that take the name of Christ, they baptise infants in their childhood. Very, very few believe in baptism. Now, I'll tell you another thing. There's a whole lot of the people that take up the name of Christ and call themselves churches, and they do not believe in justification by faith and faith alone. You say, oh, okay, surely, surely they must, they mustn't. They can't possibly. Well, they don't. And you see, the minute you begin to kind of apply your mind, you know, there's a lot of, do you know, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if we were all united together? Yes, it We're all really one big happy family. Really. What we need to grasp is that this is a spiritual unity. It's not a unity imposed from outside. It's not taking down the, the notice board outside the hall and plastering the same notice on everybody's hall or everybody's church. It's not just calling us all by the one name. What he, what he's yearning for is a spiritual unity between the Lord's people. Now, here is a point now. I don't believe personally, now some may differ from me in this, that when the Lord prays this prayer, that what it guaranteed was that everything would immediately and inevitably and inexorably fall into line with the divine will. I mean, for example, when he says, pray, I pray that, that thou shouldest keep them. We know that there were at times differences of opinion among the apostles. And we know at times apostles lost their lives. And we know at times apostles were attacked and maligned. So it's back to the argument, what did he mean by keep? Well, what we, what we have in mind here, I think, is, is the purposes of God expressed in prayer, his yearnings for us. He prays, he desires, his longing is, his prayer to God is. But you know, I do believe with all my heart that we can frustrate in a measure the will of God. We can check him, we can thwart him, we can put roadblocks in his way, we can divert him from his purpose. I do believe that ultimately, and we do believe this to be true, that when we're all brought in the unity of the faith, there will be that day when the true unity will be fully expressed when the body of Christ is lifted to heaven. But you know, you and I can put impediments in the way of unity. You and I can be practical obstacles in the prayer of Christ, in the way of the prayer of Christ.
Is there unity in Midland Park? I'm not talking about do you agree about everything in the Bible reading. I'm talking about unity of purpose and desire, a fellowship. You know, that I do believe is the very thing for which he prayed. Unity locally, and one day I do believe unity spiritually, spiritually when the whole church is taken to heaven, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. And I will just quickly close with this, and then the meetings will be over. The last prayer of all, the last section of all, is in verse number 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Then verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, and when Jesus had spoken these words, this is a, a little bit of a geographical hint for you to where he may have been. When he'd spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron. Now that to me geographically puts him outside the city and on the walk down that sloping pathway to the brook Kidron. So ere he went to the garden and prayed in an agony, these lovely words had been prayed. Now just close with this. I will also that they also, that thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. You know, what a wonderful way. That is his will, and that blessed will of Christ will be fulfilled one day. You know, we will one day behold the glory of the Lord. And when that happy day comes, when all that marks this world, failure, sin, and sadness, our eyes will finally catch a glimpse of that which we had looked for and longed for all the days of our life here below. We'll get a glimpse, and more than a glimpse, we will gaze full into the face of the risen, glorified Christ. And what a happy day that will be. Some glorious morning, Jesus will come. And I don't know what you feel like, dear Christian, this evening. But, you know, I know that John teaches in his own words in 1 John chapter 3 that, Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. Shall we pray?